Well, good morning and welcome. I'm CJ. I'm one of the pastors at Citizens. Um, our family here at the Bergman House has been watching Hamilton the Musical uh, since it came out on Disney+. Plus. And man, what an amazing production. I feel like any history lesson would be made better by hip-hop music. Uh, if you haven't seen the musical, it's essentially... Um, a story about the birth of our nation. And like many stories, uh, the heroine, Alexander Hamilton, sort of comes from small and insignificant origins, finds a way to change his circumstances, encounters friends along the way, faces challenges and enemies, uh, faces a tremendous amount of failure in his life, uh, but then ultimately gives his life to a greater cause than himself, leaving a lasting legacy. It's sort of a story of the American dream. And the, the musical portrays Hamilton as a devoted servant of his political ideals, but also uh, shows how he needs to cooperate with some of his greatest enemies. Uh, one of the most striking moments, one of my favorite moments in the musical is the song, The Room Where It Happens where Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson and James Madison famously struck the so-called dinner table bargain. Uh, and so in, in the musical, it's like two, two Virginians and an immigrant walk into a room diametrically opposed, foes. They emerge with a compromise having opened the doors that were previously closed, bros. That is so cool. Uh, you can laugh at my terrible rap skills there. I wish I had better ones. Super cool. And then the song says after that, it goes on to say, no one else was in the room where it happened. No one really knows how the game is played, the art of the trade, how the sausage gets made. I think what makes this moment so striking to me is that on the one hand, it really speaks to my general impression of what politics is in our country. It sort of feeds my cynicism that most of what goes on kind of happens behind closed doors regardless of what people like me think or want or need. But then on the other hand, in this song, you sort of see uh, the power of political enemies or rivals coming together to listen to one another to re reach a compromise. And man, it, it, it makes me wonder, like, is that even still possible in our country? Now, later we know that like he gets shot and so maybe we don't want that, but I want to remain hopeful um, that it's possible for people to cooperate to and then to believe that somehow you and I, as Christians, have some role to play in that. This morning, we are taking a look at the Exodus, which is the story of the birth of the nation of Israel as a political entity. In this origin story, God has a vision for how his people are to engage in public life. The calling he places on the nation of Israel is the same calling he gives us today, and it's this. We are called by God, you and I, to be devoted servants who mediate kingdom politics by setting a different table. I know that's really like, there's a lot there. We're going to unpack that together. But in a sense, we have our own dinner table bargain. 
featuring the qualities of Christ's kingdom ethic. And so the question is like, what kind of table setting is this? And, and how do we approach this table? And how do we sit around this table? And so let me pray, and then we're going to jump in this morning. God, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that you have not abandoned us to our own devices. We thank you that we have your scriptures and available in your word is a tremendous amount of wisdom for us. So God, I pray that we would come as humble learners, students of your word this morning, that we would be quick to listen. Jesus, help us to submit to your lordship. We declare you as the great king above all gods. We come to declare to you, Jesus, uh, our highest allegiance. Lord, please teach us how to engage in the politics of our city, of our state, and our country in a way that brings you glory. We thank you that you, like we sang earlier, have carried us on wings like eagles, that you're the everlasting God. We love you, God. We, we worship you. We give you glory this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, we're in week three of our series on uh, the story of God in politics called One Kingdom. And my hope and prayer throughout this series is that we would learn more about God, more about ourselves, and more about our country. What does God say about politics? How is he calling us, the church, to engage politically as citizens of his kingdom? How did America form? What values and principles is it founded upon? Where is America in line with the values of God's kingdom? And where is it misaligned? And then what is our role in that? If you're just joining us, uh, we started two weeks ago with creation. In the creation story, we see a very simple political model of two equal but distinct image bearers cooperating together to fulfill the cultural mandate to subdue and cultivate the earth. That becomes a, a foundation for a positive political framework that God institutes even before the fall of man so that humans will glorify him by building the earth from a garden to a city. So in the beginning of the story, in the creation narrative, we see shalom, this beautiful picture of government as God intended. Now, as you read the story, you realize that doesn't, that doesn't last long. By chapter three in Genesis, humans have rebelled against God. Cain murders his brother Abel. Um, not long after that, all humans on the earth have digressed into complete anarchy. Uh, the Bible says that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. Man, I don't think any of us can imagine or have experienced that kind of barbaric society. So then God repents of creating in the first place. He wipes out the entire human population except for Noah. Dave talked about this last Sunday. He then makes a covenant with Noah where we see the beginning of law and order. He says, whoever sheds the blood of man by, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Following uh, the covenant that God makes with Noah, there's even more rebellion in a place called Babel, uh, a city called Babel, where humans refuse to honor God's plan 
for a broad cultivation of the earth. So God says, go out, spread out, uh, and cultivate the earth. They say, no, we're going to build our own humanistic society that will bring us glory and not Yahweh. So then God punishes them and scatters them throughout the earth, confusing their language. Fast forward, God then chooses one man named Abraham. He attributes righteousness to him because of his faith in Yahweh, and then promises to establish Abraham as the father of a mighty nation that will bless the world. He says, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to others. So then that people group, the descendants of Abraham, become the nation of Israel. They multiply exponentially in the land of Egypt, but then Pharaoh enslaves God's people for 400 years. So the book of Exodus is the story of God's deliverance of the nation from the oppressive hands of Egypt. He takes possession of his people through their deliverance from the hand of Pharaoh, leads them out into the wilderness to reestablish his covenant with them and to begin to build the culture and the polity of the nation. And that's where we are picking up this morning in Exodus chapter 19, starting in verse 1. It says, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. Okay, so this is three months after God parts the Red Sea and leads them out of captivity in Egypt. Verse 2, They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. He says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. So God is continuing the pattern he began with Noah and Abraham of making a covenant. A covenant in the scriptures is a theme that runs throughout from beginning to end, and it's, it's a binding agreement between two parties. And the structure of this covenant, in particular at Mount Sinai, actually follows the pattern of a common document in the ancient Near East called a suzerain vassal treaty. Uh, you can, these are historic documents. There's lots and lots of, um, of versions of them that you can read. And this Suzerian vassal treaty was made when one country, often like one larger country, would conquer another country and bring the people together and say, these are the new terms of our relationship. So God, in this, um, in this narrative, identifies himself as the new leader the rescuer, the redeemer of his people. He says, you saw what I did to the Egyptians. So if you, if you go back and read the story of Exodus, God uh, humiliates 10 of the Egyptian gods in plague. So he conquers them not only militarily, but like religiously and spiritually. He, and so by doing that, he has unseated Egypt as Israel's vassal king and has established himself as their king instead. Now, 
The unique thing and the beautiful thing about this treaty is that God isn't just relating to Israel as king, but as a father relates to a son. When he says, I bore you on eagle's wings and I brought you to myself. He is expressing a devotion to his people that goes far beyond any other treaty in the ancient Near East. Okay, he goes even further, calling them his treasured possession. He says, though I own the entire earth, all that is in the earth is mine. I have marked you out as particularly valuable in my sight. Peter Gentry in his book, uh, Kingdom Through Covenants, one of the books that Dave and I have been reading. Uh, Dave quoted him last week. It's a really great book. He says this, the whole world is like a ring on God's hand and his chosen people are the jewel in that ring. I think that's such a, a beautiful picture of what is happening here. Uh, in fact, I talked about this in my sermon uh, several weeks ago uh, when we were in, in Paul's prayers in Ephesians 1. Remember when Paul prays that we would know that we are the riches of Christ's glorious inheritance. Not just that we will receive an inheritance, but that we are the inheritance of Christ. Uh, this, this sentiment is carried further in Malachi chapter 3, verse 17. Look what the Lord says here. He says, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. So as God comes to make a covenant with his people, before he lays out the terms, before he gives them the Ten Commandments and the law, he tells them first who they are. He reaffirms to them their identity as children of God so that it is from the basis of their sonship and their daughterhood that God makes this agreement with them and establishes the political structure of their government. So God is showing us here the foundation for any healthy just, flourishing society, possession by him, rescued by him, protected by him, dignified with the title of heir. These are the benchmarks of a healthy society. I mentioned a couple weeks ago, another book I'm reading um, called The Good of Politics by James Skillen. And Skillen uh, he does a ton of just kind of talking about the history of our nation, helping us understand it as believers. He talks about how the dominating political parties in our country focus almost entirely on the role of government, okay, the, the actions of the governments in the affairs of individuals, so much so that they often neglect to really provide a solid framework for our country's identity. Like for what purpose do we exist? What guiding narrative shapes who we are as a country? And just think about the amount of tension 
that forms in a nation that regularly struggles to find and agree upon a collective identity and purpose. Okay, God gives the nation of Israel an identity, a sense of purpose beyond the mechanics of their government. They belong to him. One of the things that fascinated me in Skillen's book is when he talks about two groups of people who adopted the Exodus narrative as a backdrop for their national identity in the formation of America. I'm going to read what he says. He says, the first version of the story, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant or WASP version, began with the courageous pilgrims journeying to the new world under God's guidance. Theirs was an exodus from oppressive Britain, Egypt, through the Red Sea of the Atlantic into a new promised land where they were set free to build their city on a hill as a light to the nations. Yikes, man. Like when you just read that, like, This is where manifest destiny comes from. Like this is not from God. He says the second Exodus story is different. Slaves created it mostly in song, drawing on the same biblical inspiration that had empowered the wasp story. For the slaves, however, the original promise of America articulated in the Declaration of Independence was that all human beings should be free and equal because the creator had endowed them all with the same rights. In this version of the story, the Pharaoh who thwarted the fulfillment of the declaration's promise was not a foreign king, but America's wasp slaveholders. I found that so fascinating. Now, I don't, I clearly don't join with those who adamantly suggest that this is a Christian nation founded on Christian values. I think in particular, this this wasp exodus dynamic hijacks the Bible and what results in American civil religion that falls in the same category of every other reductionistic human ideology. ideology. And then you have Christians who think their Christianity and their, their civil religion of being American are one and the same, and that's not true. What I do see here, though, and I think to make my point, is a people desperate for a sense of purpose and identity. A people looking for a story greater than themselves to give them meaning. What if you and I, the people of God, somehow had the power to signal to America that they were part of a much grander story than the liberal ideology of progress that focuses on individual rights and the protection of their property. And that's the foundation of our whole government. That John Locke's philosophy, comes, this, this idea comes from John Locke. Most of the, the early church fathers took their ideas from him where he says, life, liberty, and estate are, are what is most important. What if we were able to signal to the people that, we, that we're surrounded by that this is beautiful, but not sufficient. That God's story, that God's picture of public justice is much bigger and much more beautiful. So God shapes his nation first by giving them an identity found only in him. The rest of Exodus chapter 19 through 24 then outlines the specifics of God's covenant. Okay, it's broken up into two parts. The Ten Commandments, 
and then case laws. Now, I wish I had more time to go through all of those, but let me just say a few things about them that I think are really important. First, the Ten Commandments are timeless laws like a constitution that establishes God's expectations for how Israel is to relate to him, to one another, and to the creation. Okay, that's the Ten Commandments, more like a constitution. The next section, which are referred to as judgments, are more like time-bound legislation or case law that are meant to deal with particular issues within the Iron Age, which is where Israel is located in history. Now, this is really important for us because most of our friends don't understand how the civil and ceremonial laws work in the Old Testament and why you and I don't obey them, okay? This is like street-level mythology about the Bible. Uh, For example, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 19 says, do not wear clothing made of two kinds of material, okay? So my non-believing friend finds that passage. They come to me and they say, hey, listen, uh, you're a hypocrite. Why aren't you obeying this law? We have to understand um, the greater context, the greater, um, the, the way that this fits into God's greater story. Otherwise, uh, it'll be confusing to people why we don't obey every jot and tittle of the Old Testament. Okay? The ceremonial and civic laws in this covenant were fulfilled in Jesus, by Jesus, and no longer apply to us. The Ten Commandments, however, continue to speak directly to how we relate to God how we relate to each other, and how we relate to God's creation. Okay, so that's an important thing to understand. Now, that doesn't mean that the case law of the Old Testament has no value. There is tremendous beauty in all of these laws, especially when you get into studying how they protect image bearers, um, how different they were from the surrounding nations of the time. I mean, compared to the rest of the country surrounding the nation, these are insane laws. Um, these case laws speak to concerns for the poor, the vulnerable, the elderly, the foreigner. They address fairness in economic dealings. They speak to interpersonal integrity, justice in courts, justice in speech, They speak to concern for the safety and well-being of our neighbors, including love of our neighbor. They speak to sexual faithfulness, care for creation, distance from pagan religion, commercial honesty, and that's just to name a few. Okay, the very things that we claim to love as a nation, freedom, equality, justice, diversity, national security, all of these actually have precedence here in God's covenant with his people. Okay, so though this is a unique theocracy for a specific time in history and doesn't specifically apply to us, any nation would do well to seek the wisdom that comes from God's covenant with Israel. Now, how does this moment on Sinai fit into God's great plan for human flourishing, and what does it mean for us? Like, how do we become devoted servants who mediate kingdom politics by setting a table? 
God has given his people an identity as a nation, a constitution, legislation, but to what end? What is all of this driving toward? Let's pick it up in verse six. He's gonna tell us right here. Look what he says. He says, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Okay, I wanna talk about these two phrases here. I wanna start with holy nation. Okay, what does it mean for God's people, the nation of Israel, to be holy? I grew up and was taught in my undergrad and seminary that the word holy is the, the focus around holiness is about set-apartness, um, which I don't think is entirely untrue. Um, it's, it comes from the word, the Hebrew word, um, to cut. Um, but I was really instructed and helped by Peter Gentry's commentary on this in his book this week. He argues, especially in this context, that the idea of holiness is much more about the idea of devotion or consecration. He writes this, he says, the basic meaning is not separated, but rather consecrated to or devoted to. This is also the basic meaning of hagios, the counterpart in Greek. That's the word that's used in the Greek New Testament for holy. Gentry mentions an example from Exodus chapter 3 when God commands Moses at the burning bush to remove his sandals. You remember that? He says, remove your sandals because you're standing on holy ground. Gentry says this about, about that moment between Moses and God. He says, this is a ceremony or rite of depossession, well known in the culture of that time. Moses must acknowledge that this ground belongs to God and must enter into an attitude of consecration. Man, that is so good. Gentry then concludes, a holy nation then is one prepared and consecrated for fellowship with God and one completely devoted to him. Okay, so he says, in order to set any table for discussion around public life, politics, the role of government, we, we have to first determine where our allegiance lies and ask God to depossess us of whatever human ideology we have made ultimate. That, it is when we become fully devoted to God that we become most useful and helpful to a world trying to navigate political structures. Okay, I know this is hard because you feel like, man, I, I wanna go towards culture. I wanna go towards people that disagree with me. Okay, but he's saying to start with, I have to make sure that I am completely devo devoted to the Lord, okay? Holiness keeps us wise keeps us level-headed, grounded in kingdom citizenship, okay? It keeps us from expecting any political party or specific government structure to represent us. No, we are represented by King Jesus. Okay, so the invitation for you and I this morning is to identify and repent of any lack of holiness in our lives. Like, where have I 
failed to devote myself wholly to God, to his kingdom ethic, to the politics of his kingdom? And where have I um, been swayed by or wooed by some modern 21st century political ideology that is not from the Lord? So God calls us to holiness. God then calls them a kingdom of priests. Now, the main role of a priest in the Old Testament is the role of mediator. We see this in individual priests who stand between God and his people. So they they represent man to God and God to man. This picture of the individual priest playing that role then is also a model for the entire nation. Okay, They are to mediate God's blessings to the entire world, demonstrating to others what a relationship with God should look like, what relationships with humans, their fellow humans should look like, what their relationship with the creation should look like. Uh, God even, if we look here, God even places the nation geographically in the center of the ancient world. Okay, they're right in the middle of the great superpowers of Egypt on the one side and Mesopotamia on the other. Says God's saying, my people belong at the very center of the action, devoted to me, not separated from the rest of the world, but instead central to play the role of priest, to play the role of mediator, to represent me to the people and the people to me. The other role of a priest is the role of a servant. Okay, so that God wants his nation not only to mediate, but also to take upon them a posture of servanthood. Okay, priests had unique access to Yahweh. Okay, they got to spend more more time with him in that sense. And so their role was to steward that in a way that served and blessed the people. So they would administer sacrifices on behalf of the people to God. Okay? Thinking about their sin, praying on their behalf, saying, God, forgive them for their unrighteousness. They, they don't fully know what they do. There's a compassion and a, a shepherding servanthood there. Okay, so by that same token, the entire nation of Israel was called to be servants of the whole world, to take the unique access they had to God and leverage it to bless others. Not by lording it over them, not sort of digressing into this self-righteous superiority, not like, oh, I have closer access to God, I'm better than you. No, but instead a humble, grateful group of men and women who understood how richly blessed they were by Yahweh. Like, man, I don't deserve to have access to the Father, but by God's grace, I do. And therefore, I want to invite you into that space and give you the opportunity to experience the love of God yourself. John Durham refers to Israel as a kingdom run not by politicians depending upon strength and connivance, but by priests depending upon faith in Yahweh a servant nation instead of a ruling nation. Like, man, just sit with that for a second. A servant nation instead of a ruling nation. Stephen Dempster in his book, Dominion and Dynasty, 
said Israel will thus redefine the meaning of dominion, service. This will be its distinctive task, its distinguishing characteristic among the world of nations. So this is God's plan that he's laying out as redemptive history unfolds, as he continues to build out his his kingdom ethic, his gospel ethic, as he builds out the polity of this nation. He says, I I want you to take cultivation and dominion, the cultural mandate, and I want you to demonstrate that to the world through servanthood. Now, both of these roles that he's given to Israel, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, both of those same roles have been given to us. Look what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verse 9. He says, but you... That's us, Jewish and Gentile Christians for all of time, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I love God's story. Like I love, I love that we can go all the way back to Exodus, read this, and then just jump to First to Peter and see the connection here. Peter applies this language of the church. He says, you and I, like Israel, we're a kingdom of priests, a holy nation called by God to be devoted servants, just like these priests, mediators of kingdom politics by setting a different table. Think about like, what if, what if America had a mediator? What, what would that look like if in all of the like culture wars and hatred and yelling, like what would it take for somebody to mediate that conversation? How could we even get both of those parties to agree upon the mediator, right? That person would have to be like Jesus, the Messiah, but they'd have to be objective trusted by all, protective of all, okay? So for us, as we represent Jesus, we cannot mediate anything if we are so partial to one side that we fail to listen to and appreciate the values of somebody else, okay? So here's what I wanna do to kind of close us out. I wanna show you a chart that Mike Goheen used in a webinar I attended this week on politics and the story of God. Um, I love Mike Goheen. I, I first read his book, The Drama of Scripture, like 10 years ago. Um, he did all his doctoral work on a man named Leslie Newbegin, which is, he, Leslie Newbegin was like a theologian, philosopher, and missionary um, that essentially birthed the modern missional movement. Like a ton of the stuff that we preach and, and all the vision of our church all comes from Leslie Newbegin. And Mike Goheen uh, helps lead a missional training center in Phoenix. And so I'm connected with a lot of people that, that work together with him. He's a great thinker. I posted the webinar actually on Slack and I, I highly recommend it if you have time. It's only like less than an hour. Um, but he walks through this chart, okay? And I'm gonna have Renee, um, will you go ahead and go ahead? Yeah. So you and I are all familiar with this sort of left-right spectrum in American politics. Okay, on the right, you have this great emphasis on freedom and responsibility. On the, uh, on the left, equality and justice. You can show that, babe. Okay, and interestingly enough, 
um, you kind of see these two ideas emerge from those two Exodus stories that I read earlier, right? Um, where you have the, the freedom from a centralized, overly centralized government on the one hand, and then on the other hand, you sort of have this like um, focus on unjust laws, okay, from the second narrative. Okay, but then Goheen draws another line down the middle that demonstrates another dichotomy between what he refers to as modern and postmodern politics. Okay, so if freedom and equality on the top represent sort of a modern or moderate form of politics, there's a more recent presence of a postmodern progressive ideology um, that focuses on national security on the one side and diversity and environmental concerns on the other. Okay. Um, and so you sort of have this like classic politics of freedom and equality, right? The modern moderate, but then now you have sort of this like postmodern thing of not believing that that works, right? And so you have this reactivity and this focus on uh, diversity and, and national security. Now, Goheen admits that this is very, is overly simplistic, but I think it's really helpful. Now, what I wanna do is let's just look at these four corners for a minute and pretend there are no lines. Let's just get rid of those lines for a second, okay? And this is something we can do like with friends and neighbors where you just kind of stop and go, hey, are all these things important? Like, is any one of these things like completely unimportant? And I think most people would agree like, yeah, they are. They're of some importance. And then I think it, it, what's interesting is to sort of ask, like, where do these concepts come from? Like, how far back can we go in history? Is there anywhere in ancient literature where you might find these values for a flourishing society? And then we find like, they're all here in the Exodus story. Like, does God care about national security for his people? Yes, he rescues them from an oppressive ruler and pr promises to protect them from outsiders. Does God care about equality and injustice? Yes, it's all over his case laws for Israel in an iron age. Does God care about diversity? Absolutely. The goal of his nation is that they would bless the sojourner and the immigrant, that they would give access to Yahweh, to anyone that desires that. Does God care about freedom and responsibility? Yeah, he expects them to obey his laws in exchange for his blessing. Laws that include caring for the environment. Okay, so the problem is not with the presence of these values in any society, but the insistence of those who would take any one of these and make them ultimate to the exclusion of the others. And an unwillingness to listen to those who are coming from different perspectives. Okay, all of us are gonna start from one of these places and move towards the middle, okay? So Goheen says, what if we did this? What if we put Jesus and the cross where he belongs at the very center of this. Seated on the throne of all of these ideologies. This is like, man, all of these are, these values, these things that you love, these things are mine. Like I created them, they come from me. After all, this is what the Exodus story is all about. Okay, like the, the Exodus story is not open source material 
that can be taken by any, anybody that wants to to find it useful for their own political agenda. Okay, it's, a, it's about Jesus. Okay, when God delivered Israel from the hand of Egypt and made them a holy nation and kingdom of priests, he wasn't like super pumped about America and how someday this story could find its perfect fulfillment in our country. No, he was excited about Jesus. Like, Jesus is the culmination of this story. Jesus says that you and I and everybody else that ever lived are both Israel and Pharaoh. We are the oppressor and the oppressed. And so Jesus had to die for us. He had to be holy because we aren't holy. Like we're not devoted to him. He had to be the final mediator because Israel failed to do that and could not do that because of their individual and corporate sin and idolatry. I love what Leslie Newbigin says. He says, we are all in some measure, both oppressors and oppressed. The gospel, the good news with which we are charged is that the reign of God present in Jesus has brought us all together under judgment and has in the same act brought us all together under blessing. In the presence of the cross, There are no innocent parties. In its presence, we know that we are all together guilty and yet all together forgiven, loved, set free. The good news is that we are liberated and it is out of that actually given liberation that our actions for justice and mercy flow. Okay, man, the the beauty of this is like this covenant God made in Exodus was not the last covenant. Jesus came and replaced the old covenant with a new covenant. And where, where is Jesus when he makes that new covenant? Sitting at a table with his followers. Sets a table where he makes his own body and his own blood the main course of that meal. So Goheen says, What if this picture of Christ at the center of the diagram became a table that you and I, as a new kingdom of priests and devoted servants of God, made, set for others so that we might mediate a politic of Christ's kingdom for others? Okay, Jesus sets a new table where oppressors and the oppressed are invited to feast on his body and blood while they all seek to understand and listen to each other's points of view. If each person can recognize how their perspective is only a piece of what God cares about for humans while not holding it to be ultimate, then each party can come to the table to both speak and to listen. And so, Brothers and sisters, people of God, citizens of God's kingdom, you and I are Christ's ambassadors. We are his hosts. We set this table and invite others to come and sit at it. Devoted servants of Yahweh, mediating kingdom politics, the world, most of the people in the world have never seen a new table of redemption. That's the call placed on us this morning. Let me pray for us.
God, I just thank you that we, um, we have access to the Father, that we are sons and daughters of the King, that you welcomed us to sit at your table when we were rebellious against you, when we were so proud, thinking that we knew more than we did, thinking that we understood more than we did about ourselves, about life, about the world. Jesus, you came and you rescued us. So we, fought, we praise you this morning, Father, and we uh, confess our great need for you. This call to mediate is a big burden and we need your grace and we're gonna need to say we're sorry a lot and be humble a lot. God, I pray that you would equip and empower this church family as we approach the fall and more and more discussions are being had about politics and the government in America. Would we be equipped and ready? Would we have a framework to begin with to graciously uh, promote good dialogue? And God, would you help us have good dialogue with each other? Would this be a community where our highest allegiance is to Christ and therefore we can come from different political perspectives and accept and listen to one another? We need your help in that. It's in your name we pray. Amen.